Okay, you ready? I'm Thurston Moore, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. <laughs> Hello, I'm Andrew Mail, and this is the Mojo Record Club podcast, a place to bring together record lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests, and share our love of classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. Today, we're in central London at the height of the UK heat wave. It's very, very hot and all the fans are on. So we might sound a little different because we're joining you remotely rather than in person from our regular studio, but we are still overseen by our regular producer, Suze, who will be dropping in to tell you what records we've just listened to. My guests today are Mojo News Editor Ian Harrison. Hello, everybody. And a man I first saw live at the University of London in October 1985 with (laughs) Sonic Youth, Thurston Moore. Hello, Thurston. Hello, hello. How are you coping with the heat? Oh, I love it. I Oh, God. I, yeah. I mean, I say that with conflict because we know that this is sort of the, the end of the universe. But other yeah. than that, I, I, I you know, I'm, I, I was a, I'm a Florida boy by birth. Yeah. Oh, of course. Right. So, yeah, kind of, it's in my DNA a bit. So I always, uh, yeah. I appreciate it for a while. <laughs> yeah. But it was, I think it's probably nice that we didn't have to travel in on the tube this morning. And that's I, good. Come on, we have technology, you know, why, why, <laughs> yeah. why move? Exactly. <laughs> why leave the yeah. house? Why leave your bed? You know, we just, you know, this is our, our new world. I'm so glad that you were up for doing this. It my, should be, uh, my pleasure. It should be, a, it should be a nice chat. And Suze, shall I, um, shall I start? Fine with me. Oh, what happened to you there? Did we just lose our producer? Yes, you did. I think we did. Yeah. Yeah. Anarchy reigns. <laughs> exactly. Kick over the statues. Oh, no, wishes. Oh, here we go. I'm okay. praying now there shouldn't be any dropouts. Hey, it's cool to drop out, Suze. Mm. Cool to drop out. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very mojo thing to say. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's an old, uh, it used to be our old banner headline. Yeah, right. Drop yeah. out with mojo. Yeah. Yeah. Thurston is, what can, what, how can I describe it, an alternative rock improv and noise thaumaturge. He's worked with such godheads as Yoko Ono, John Zorn, Cecil Taylor, Faust, Glenn Branca, and Erman Schmidt. He's a teacher of writing, poetry, and music. And he's also released seven solo albums since 1995, Psychic Hearts, including a recent collection of lockdown instrumentals, Screen Time, and 2020's By the Fire which Mojo called his best album post-Sonic Youth, containing some of the best music the has ever released, including this fantastic opening track. We're going to drop in a bit of hashish now. Hypnotic, seductive, slightly sinister, and rich in riffs. Thurston doing what Thurston does best. by Thurston Moore, released by Daydream Library. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Thurston Moore. Thurston, before we talk about the record that you've brought in for us today, I'd like to ask you a bit about two books that you and um, Eva Marie Moore are bringing out later this year through the Ecstatic Peace Library. Um, In September, you're releasing 
Linger On, which is right. a book of, if I'm right in saying, the Spanish journalist Ignacio Julia's 80s and 90s interviews with the, the Velvet Underground. Right. But it also includes some absolutely gorgeous photos, many that I've never seen before, particularly those by a guy called James Hamilton. Is that right? That's right. Well, yes, the book The book um, is is a uh, a bit of a uh, extended expanded uh, reprint of a book that came out of Spain uh, many, many years ago called Feedback yeah. by the uh, journalist Ignacio Julio, uh, who has a, who's the editor of a, um, of a great Spanish music magazine called Ruta 66. And I've known Ignacio for quite some time, at least since the, the 80s, and he was one of the first people to do a serious uh, overview of Sonic Youth and published a book of an oral history of the band at the time in the late 80s called I Dreamed of Noise and um, it was his follow up to doing feedback and after all these years uh, we were talking to Ignacio about some of the interviews that were in feedback and he said well I just have extensive interviews with uh, Sterling Morrison that have never been seen and, and Nico and Kale and, and, and Lou and Mo and looking at his archives it was it was incredible it, it, uh, uh, feedback only just hinted at what he uh, what he had available and we've been working on it for the last couple of years and it's just being published this September yeah linger on and it's it's incredible uh it's probably the the, the most um intimate and extensive interviews that Sterling Morrison had has has ever been in print with um that's the word that I was going to use there's a mood to it that I've never kind of felt before when I've read about Velvet Underground or where I've read Velvet Underground interviews, there's a kind of, there's an ease to it. Yeah. And there's, there's a sense that some of the people who he interviews have their guard up and are, are, are playing at being a version of Velvet Underground, but certainly not Sterling. And even when they are, there's a way in which he speaks to them and asks them questions and approaches them that feels utterly unique. Mm -hmm. They they were uh, historically, if not notoriously, um, uh, kind of bristling with journalists, uh, yeah. as you know, as as individuals, and even in, in, in the in, when you see interviews with the group, um, they really are kind of um, at odds with you know how they're being sort of uh, uh, talked to <laughs> or talked with. I mean, especially in the '60s, you know, when music journalism was still coming out of like this kind of '50s era of just sort of reportage and. I think coming to uh, meet somebody like Ignacio Julia in Barcelona, Spain, who was just really immersed in their uh, their history, they, I think they felt comfortable with him because he he didn't come to them so much as a journalist, but as somebody who was an, a, as a, a complete enthusiast and somebody who really was dignifying a lot of their work. And he never really um, his agenda was only just to be friends with them, really, just in yeah. you know, which he found. A, a Sterling opened up to him, and you know Lou would always sort of ask ask him what his name was when he. <laughs> he's like, I met him fifty times, and he still asked me like, "What's your name?" <laughs> but that was Lou. Our book also uh, has, as you mentioned, um, these photos that have never been seen by the New York City photographer James Hamilton. The thing to reflect upon is, I mean, how, how do you keep all these remarkable photographs hidden for so long? Why didn't he get them out before? I think that he's one of the few photographers I know who whose work is not like spread thin on the internet. 
I mean, the last couple of years, he has been putting stuff up on his Facebook page, which he kind of figured out how to do. And uh, of certain, like, you know, if there was like a, a birthday of, of a certain actor, he did a lot of photography, not just of the music world, but of film world. And he has great shots of like Hitchcock and Truffaut and you know, De Niro and, you know, and, and, um, uh, and then he has all this kind of street photography and civic photography because he was a, he was a, he was an assignment photographer, you know, he was like, go out and cover the Rolling Stones after party and then, you know, wake up and go to this ribbon cutting on the Washington Bridge and then, you know, go to this luncheon where Ahmed Ertegun is like, you know, having a, introducing some new act and all this kind of stuff. So he was, he shot everything and he had, and he was very artful in his, he had a very, yeah. he had a very idiosyncratic um, uh, eye. And so I love his work and we became good friends in the last decade or so and so we've been going through mm. his work and we did compile this one book of music uh, photography that I mentioned earlier and and then we went to him when we were putting together this Linger On Velvet Underground book and said what shots do you have of Lou and Nico and, and he had incredible stuff that I've never been seen you know? those um, Nico images where she looks like a heroine in an Italian giallo yeah. movie yeah. are just astonishing Beautiful. aren't they yeah. Yeah, I just, yeah. I mean, so it'd be really nice when people see that. But it's interesting that point you were saying about how if a narrative doesn't exist on the internet, it almost kind of is, you know, is forgotten about. Yeah. And kind of, there's a kind of, I suppose, a similarity about retelling or representing right. hidden stories in, mm. in, in the kind of, the, the other book, which is the, you, I'm right, is it an auto, autobiography of Maggie Nichols? Yes, well, it's, it's, Maggie, it's Maggie Nichols' uh, uh, memoirs, quote unquote, quote unquote. It's her writing on her on her her musical life, and it's essaying, yeah. and it's she has uh, just her own sort of socio philosophical kind of asides, and, and 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 ephemera is in the book. Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, she's. I mean, you'd probably describe her as like an improv jazz vocalist, Scottish, no. um, played with spontaneous music ensemble and centipede. Yes, of course. But also formed. Um, the feminist improvising group right. in 1977. That's right. So how they, could you explain a bit what they were and what their goal was? You know, the, my interest in, in in the genre of free improvisation sort of came more into play like in the late 80s into the 90s. And it came out of being really interested in the history of, of avant-garde jazz music. And yeah. then seeing that distinction between the European and British models of free improvisation that sort of possibly had, had its roots in sort of stateside American free jazz, but had distinguished itself from it uh, because of just their own sort of cultural reality. And so that made me curious because it didn't have so much to do with the the technical expertise of traditional jazz, but something else entirely, which was like this kind of dignity of of, commu of communitarian kind of ensemble playing. And there's a kind of social yeah, socialism to a, it. There, it was very political in that sense, and it was also, to me, it just it was also the most surprising music I had really heard up to that point. Thinking that I had come out of an an era of like there are no surprises because we've just kind of like blew the doors off of everything with punk rock. And to sort of like get into that history of free improvisation, I just sort of saw it as this 
this kind of independent artist-run scene that really predated what we thought was like the first independent artist-run scene of like you know underground mm. and independent music and and such coming out of rock and roll music. But uh, and so that really drew me in and just like and also just sort of hearing this music that didn't really sort of cater to um, any kind of industry standard of, of success. It was it was really sort of communicates between the musicians themselves and this like this these different ideas. It was all idea driven. I loved it. And so Maggie Nichols f figures prominently in there as one of the a few females in a very sort of male centric kind of world of, of, of that music. Um, and it was never like punk rock. It was never it never set itself up as being exclusionary at all but just by the sake of just the the history of any industry in you in, know in, in our centuries it's mm. male dominated and so uh maggie was for me was a really uh curious figure because i think she sort of came out of uh, of traditional jazz vocalizing and found a place in this this kind of more op this world of open-ended kind of um repartee and her work with john stevens as a, as a young woman in the in the spontaneous music ensemble is 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 phenomenal i mean it's just like i think it's some of the most critical music that, that had come out of britain in the 60s you know um as as was amm alongside yeah. Pink floyd and you know um and what have you and the beatles for god's sakes you know and so i mm -hmm. uh i was always very interested in her work and when i found out about the feminist improvising group of the early 70s they had there was no recorded documentation of them and uh, except for one cassette that was uh, some spurious live pieces that some of the members had put together and issued just independently and, and kind of gave away to f friends and family and maybe it was on a did they have merch tables in the early seventies? I don't. But they—they uh... <laughs> they might, might have sold a sold a, a cassette and compendium books. Yeah, and exactly. Counted, and, you would have yeah. you would have found it a compendium, and uh, and I was interested in the the idea of just sort of a, a group calling itself a feminist improvising group in a very sort of like male centric genre. Uh, it was very you know there was something um, really beautiful and brazen about that. But according to Maggie, it's like. The, the only reason they were called feminist improvising group was because somebody had put that on a flyer. And it's like, oh, we have an improvising group. They didn't. They, well, they didn't have a name. They were just like, we don't have a name. We're nameless. You know, we're just who we are. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I'll you, call you yeah, the yeah. feminist improvising exactly. group. Exactly. It's like, well, they're a feminist improvising group. It's like, oh, is that what we are? Thank you, thank you, thank you for mansplaining who we are. And that's it is a good name, though, isn't it? To be fair. It's a cool name, and then they kind of shortened it to Fig, which has this kind of you know biblical kind of like yeah. Adam and Eve thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, it took me forever to actually find a copy of that cassette, you know, as a record collector uh, freak uh, my entire life. And then, like, you know, the advent of Discogs or whatever. It's just like, every day, like, where are that cassette? And finally, somebody <laughs> came up with one, and I was just like... <clears throat> and then all my other collector freak friends wrote to me, he's like, did you get that cassette, you bastard? <laughs> you know? Our book is called... Um, uh, I'm going to read it to you because it's, it's, in, it's, it's, in the, it's in the works here. It's called On Creative Liberation Practices of Freedom. On Creative right. Liberation Practices of cool. Freedom. And that'll be published in October. That's the, sec that's the book after the, the VU. Tome. I, was, I was really struck listening to, uh, because obviously with everything you approach with certain preconceptions, that 
there is a real folk quality to her vocal at yeah. times that it's not it's not within that realm of what I might have assumed was the female jazz improv vocal right. sound that there is there's definitely elements where it sounds like kind of you know that there's there are folk inflections in it which I really liked you know your boundaries are your quest I could explain this Fixing that. You must have shadow and light, source both. Listen and lay your head under the tree of all. Shadow and light, source both by Maggie Nichols, released by Cafe Auto. She's a Scottish woman. I think she has a lot of history of just like living in rurality and so she has that kind of that spirit folk and so i am yeah yeah, quality. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah you know which is really ineffable i mean yeah when i first would hear am briggs singing it just it's it struck me you know as something that was coming from it was otherworldly you know yeah in, in absolutely its tone and it's it's like it comes from the earth the inflections yeah um, so I, I definitely a, think Maggie has that same quality definitely. as as a free improvising vocalist. It's a nice, smooth link as well. The fact that uh, Maggie was all about challenging sort of accepted straight white male music orthodoxy because excellent Radio Two link that brings us neatly into the record that you've you've brought in to talk about today, yeah. which is um, Big Joni's Sisters from two thousand and eighteen. Yeah. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club on Thurston Moore. So Thurston, when did you first discover Big Jody? And I suppose that there's a two-part, that's a two-part question. When did you first discover Big Jody and the culture of bands that they are part of? Because that's absolutely fascinating as well. Well, Big Jody, I, 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 I was not alone in, in discovering Big Jody. Uh, my partner, Eva, and I had gone to see our friends, The X. The, yeah. the Dutch anarcho punk band. Great band. Uh, great band from 1979 onwards, if not earlier. And they kind of had a... we Sonic Youth and the X had a very kind of connected history in the early 80s when we would support each other and play. And they, they were one of the first bands to sort of put us up when we came to Europe and were traversing across the, the continent. And it's where I, I actually first saw this kind of ideal of like communal living and, and like this music that was all about sort of uh, you know bringing thoughts and ideas to the people you know in punk rock and uh, that didn't really exist in the USA so much and, and you know there was there was some kind of punk houses and this, but the idea of this kind of like really politicized kind of squat living where this kind of communal responsibility I really discovered that through the X in, in uh, Amsterdam uh, so stayed friends with the X all these years and they were playing uh, at this club in Islington I wish I can give you the name of it uh, it's the only time I had ever gone there I believe uh, it's still around and I, w- I wish I could give them props but I, I, I'm sort of blanking on it we went to uh, we went to see the X and the support band was Big Joni of which we you know knew nothing about their name was on the the door you know and we got there in time to see them and so we got there this trio of young women come out on stage and we were immediately mesmerized 
um, certainly Eva was. She ran up to the front of the stage and started like just staring and then dancing the night away to this incredible group who were just mm-hmm. playing this really just like instantaneously infectious, just learned it this morning, kind of like, you know, like these punk nuggets that had uh, just this this really distinct quality to it just because of these who these three people were of like their own yeah. sort of uh, innate power as 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 women of color and having this music just blow our minds so yeah we're big journey we're a black feminist punk band um and we recently released our debut album sisters on thurston moore's um new label daydream library series and uh yeah this is our latest single fall asleep So afterwards, and the audience loved it too. But you know, we were, you know, we were just like, who, who's this band? And I, I sort of thought they were part of the whole upset the rhythm scene. You know, like the the the, the London uh, sort of underground independent music label of, of that puts out a lot of music by a, a lot of bands um, that are kind of sort of radical punk and kind of a DIY and just you know. Uh, learning from the bootstraps up kind of bands that just are fun and furious and, and, and a lot of times fantastic. I thought they were part of that scene, but they weren't because we went up to them afterwards and said, can we buy a cassette and they were, or a record? What do you have? And they said, well, we have nothing. And we actually had a, 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 a cassette uh, last year when we first kind of got together and we were a bit of a four-piece, and but um, we didn't make very many copies of it. And and so we said, well, how come you don't have a record? You guys are so great. I said, well, we recorded a record, you know, uh, at the studio uh, with an engineer named Margot Broom. And, but no, nobody really wants, nobody will put it out. And we don't really have any money to put it out. And we said, well, we'll put it out. Actually, Eva said she'll put it out. And I said, <laughs> and I was just like, no, no, no. I, I, I've run a record label for like, you know, a number of years and I it, called ecstatic uh, piece and I did it through cargo uh, distribution here in in in, in the UK um, and forced exposure in the USA and but I had put it to bed because it was you know it's, it's quite an expenditure to put records out especially records that you, you're lucky if they break even so it's always this mm-hmm. kind of to me it was always about just this you put records out because you love to do it and it's a kind of a gifting mm-hmm. to the culture that you're part of and there's a, that exchange is sort of you, you can't really monetize it you know um so it's idealistic but it's just like it's also wonderful you spend money to make art you know and so i love the idea that i wanted to put this record out um she she was a senior book editor at some uh, big publishing houses in new york but putting out books is slightly different than putting out records but in the same way there's some similarities um and i and you know i knew i i uh i was kind of all for it so I said well let's go talk to my old friends at Cargo which we did and we said can you help us 
manufacture and distribute this record by this band. And when we heard the recording, we were also as astounded as we were by them live. Um, this is the record right here. I think you've probably seen it. Yeah, I have, yeah, yeah. I, I have a copy. Yes. And, yeah, it's uh, a fantastic record. Sisters. And when when we talked to the group about it, they were you know they were extremely amenable. They were really sort of um, you know flattered you know and well chuffed. I think you say yeah. And then <laughs> they did. <day, yeah. laughs> And we were just like, in the, and Cargo was like, well, you know, it's really hard to sell records these days. So let's do like 300, 400 copies. You know, maybe we can sell them. And I was just, we were like, no, let's do 500 to 1,000. And, you know, against their best wishes, is, is, uh, we, we put out, uh, I think, the 500 records, and they just disappeared. So there was this whole kind of underground London fan base uh, around Big Joni that we discovered. And they had been instrumental in presenting uh, these concerts that uh, were under the hubris decolonize fest, you know, and it, yes. and it was about uh, bands of color that weren't playing music atypical to what people would ascribe to their yeah. culture as such. And so decolonized us was just breaking down any kind of like boundaries of of, uh, of distinction towards what the expectations were you know, were towards any kind of you know cultural baggage. And a, is there another one coming up soon? I think there, there is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think there was a what's it kind of to decolonize the past to decolonize the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. decolonize it's, the past to decolonize the future is, and it's you know. They're 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 very outwardly political in in yeah. in, in what they uh, in their presentation and their music on, on stage between songs they talk about the idea of of just just really burning sort of sort of uh, burning down parliament yeah burning down parliament. <laughs> that's <laughs> <laughs> burning down parliament and uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't Number know. They one. might ed edit that line out of the podcast. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? We'll see. Um, well, they do, they do with the, the, the tremendous um, quality of the, like, of the pop punk tunes as well, isn't there? The yeah, yeah. Was it, there was a, I was reading an interview with them, and they talked about the phrase that popped out was "joy as a revolutionary force." Exactly, and that's what I that's what I heard in that music. It reminded me a lot of just sort of like almost when I first heard. Um, when I first heard Bleach by Nirvana or something, because it was something very, yeah. it was like, well, I've heard these chords before, you know, mm. but it was just like, there was a, there was a, there was a, there was a, there was some other thing going on there that was so personal and, and so sort of, you know, it was so, um, it was just like the primal, the, 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 the primal take on it that you can never replicate once you become more practiced as an artist and as a musician rather and, yeah yeah and you can't and what's yeah. really interesting is that listening to them now as they go into like new songs have they have a new album coming out um it's it's a it's a really completely different record in a way it's it's sort of like this kind of prototypical like second album where they're kind of stretching outward but it's yeah, not yeah. done but it's not done purposefully as such it's just who they are and they're kind of like are getting finding their own voices with their instruments but that first album is them 
just sort of playing for a year and like yeah. wanting to play yeah, and, 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 and discovering <laughs> punk rock and discovering each other in the punk rock world and seeing you know each other is like this is a primarily kind of a white world of music but we're not we're not white people we're black people who love punk rock we love all kinds of music but we really love punk rock and we wouldn't yeah. start a punk rock band um and to me it's like you know when i got when i sort of followed into punk rock in the 70s it was like it was like to me it was like that's what that forum was it was com completely welcoming you know even yeah. though it was like a lot of boys it was just like the idea of of non-boys whether it's women or people of color who are you know non-white people it's like it was not only welcome but it was just like really encouraged and it was also yeah. not something that was harped upon as anything other than itself it was like everybody yeah. it, so that kind of that kind of equal value was what defined me for punk rock and it, it's interesting watching that pistols movie that you know uh what's the what's the steve jones book that got the uh, pistol yeah. yeah yeah pistol and it's sort of like kind of it's just sort of that whole thing of mclaren and that band and that band kind of like here's this kind of intellectual sort of like art school uh upper middle class kind of person wanting to sort of do something with this kind of working class youth but they weren't even working class they were just like they were straight up criminals i mean these guys are yeah. like steve jones was like a street rat Sid was just like in court, like you know, like uncontrollable, the you know, boy on the street. Johnny was just like off, you know, was just like off his head kind of boy, and then you know, Cookie was the friend, and so, but that collusion of just sort of like this, this kind of sort of educated class and this kind of like wilding, this wilded kind of like part of society and coming together and creating this music that was sort of had a union was really curious to me because it it kind of even though it, it could butt heads with each other, it was also sort of in, it, it was also in the same kind of stream. And the same thing in New York was happening when when I first started going to gigs, it was like, you would see the Dead Boys or the Heartbreakers who were really sort of these kind of like rough and tumble kind of like bad boy guys on stage. And then you would have these ultra nerd geek math boys like the david byrne talking heads or tom verlaine yeah, or or yeah oh yeah exactly on the, uh, on the same stage and that to me that that collusion was like really what sort of defined that that music in a way it was just this sort of like this this actually kind of wild nature and then this kind of like more intellectualized nature kind yeah of coming together and working together and it was curious to sort of see the friction and the clashing that occurred within it even though it all sometimes in the same group you know and so i think it's it can be really thrilling and i know a lot of people were really quite critical of pistol but i thought it captured that really well I think, and i think the other th the other thing as well is that it remembered to be funny yeah you know it was it was really properly funny as well and it ca and then it you know it captured all the kind of contradictions and dichotomies surrounding the pistols i thought really well even exaggerating that by presenting yeah. the story in that form yeah. no, i thought it was i thought it was i thought it was really smart i thought boyle just really going out of his way to to give voice to sort of these these feminist pronouncements from yeah and westwood and uh and and um Chrissy Hyde yeah, and, and Jordan, and, and, yeah. you know, even though Chrissy would say like, well, I was never a feminist, you know, but, but it's like, well, that's, 
it's and she was also not a young American ingenue, sort of like working the story. No, but rewriting the history in a really interesting way yeah. to present those women in the foreground, I thought was yeah. was fantastic. It basically said, look, we, we're not we're not telling an authentic story, and we'll piss off people who right. have come here for authenticity. Yeah, I don't know if he right. I don't know if he read Jones's book, but it's yeah, it's so. It's such a weird book because it's so crude. It, it's, it takes yeah. misogyny to like a level just like that's <laughs> you. It's almost like surrealist. And well, it's come. Yeah. It seems to have come from the world of those Richard Allen Skinner yeah. books, yeah, yeah, or something, yeah. doesn't it? It exists in the same world as that. Yeah. Did but, you did you read it, Ian? Did you read the cookie the, this the Jones, Steve Jones book? I must confess, I actually haven't got around to it yet. Oh, right. Okay. It, 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 big, it's big pretty client. intense. Yeah, you wouldn't ask me that question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's this beating heart in the book and there's also somebody who's he is not he he exemplifies this person abused by his own reality but who kind of isn't hateful. And yeah. it's sort of the book is very kind of loving even though it's sort of like the, <laughs> This is predator, like yeah, all at the same time. Oh, no, it, but, I know, mean, it's, we should say we should say what the book is called. It's Lonely Boy by Steve Jones. But you're right; it goes to some incredibly dark places, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. As a kind of almost as an act of, yeah, you know, th- self therapy for Steve Jones. Right, and it's not, it's not a for, it, it's a book that doesn't forgive itself either. Because he, he kind of no. comes out of the story. He's like, I, I am not going to come out of this book smelling like roses just tell there's, no clo- yeah, there's no closure there's no closure yet, there he's like this is who i was this is who i am now god bless us all mm. <laughs> yeah. another i want to play another um a snippet of another track um by big joni i want to play a little bit of their um cover of solange's cranes in the sky because mm. i think that's a really good example of you know what they can do with the work of of, of another you know, powerful female black artist, but at the same time, make it their own. The singer-songwriter of the band, uh, uh, Stephanie Phillips, had written a, a book called Why Solange Matters mm. um, in the series of Why So-and-So Matters series of books. And, yeah, so that's that single, Cranes, yeah. comes, comes in, 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 is an adjunct to that or to, to each other. in the sky written by Solange and covered by Big Joni released by Third Man Records I'm Thurston Moore and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club it's also a nice little link into we're going to just move into a little bit on what me and Ian have been listening to this week because um, the the Solange cover came out on Jack White's mm-hmm. Third Man Records and I've um, one of the records I've been listening to this week is his new solo LP uh, which is called Entering Heaven Alive mm-hmm. and it's Jack, I mean, I interviewed Jack White really early on uh, the, when the sort of White Stripes first came over to the UK. And he's he's always somebody I've found absolutely fascinating. And it's interesting what you were saying about Steve Jones. There's a sense that there is a constant 
turmoil in the mm. work of, of Jack White, that he is wrestling mm -hmm. with all these kind of unsettled ideas of sort of who he is mm -hmm. and everything. And this album, on the one hand, it seems to be him trying to find a state of calm or peace. Mm -hmm. but at the same time, he's putting all his neuroses mm -hmm. out front as well, because he's saying there's a track called Love is selfish. Yeah. And there's a kind of, and there's a really quite a, a scary track called "I've got you surrounded with my love." Yeah, that's so pretty even, wild, isn't it? So even when he's trying to be this kind of, you know, in a state of contentment, he's he's simultaneously in a state of turmoil. Yeah, yeah. I find it. I find him constantly kind of fascinating, sort of brilliant, scary. Contradictory. Yeah, because Fear of the Dawn is obviously a lot more of uh, a bit more full on. The previous, the previous record, which is the veins bulging in his forehead record, compared to this one, which is much more sort of folky and amenable. But in a way, I almost said this one is a little bit. It's even more intense in a way because yeah, he's like he's trying to be calm. He's trying to find the love. I'm trying to be calm. Oh yeah, yeah. There's always this thing of like I'm trying to sort of reach this point, you know, in my life especially when you're sort of getting into your 50s or 60s i don't know how old jack is i think he's 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 in his mid 40s okay so perfect I, you know, timing yeah yeah so that's when you start like thinking about these things and especially somebody like that who's had that kind of celebrity in their life it's like mm -hmm. and yeah i mean so these questions this is you kind of want to reach you kind of want to reach this point of like okay everything's cool let's move on yeah. to like it Knowing all the well, all the while that it, it never, it's never cool. <laughs> it, ne it, it never comes. Never, that, pla that place of calm never yeah. arrives. Calm yeah. maturity, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just but, stays um, stuck somewhere saw, else. You saw him live at Glastonbury recently, I didn't you? I did, and I must say, I, I'd watched uh, Diana Ross, which was, um, you know, it was great to see Diana Ross, but we needed more. It was the last day, and <laughs> we need more, uh, Jack Diana. White. Well, we just needed more of than what she was giving, I'm sad to say. It was but it was yeah. slightly disappointing. But um, the Jack White thing was absolutely phenomenal. You know, it was one of the best things I saw there. You know, singing with, a, you know, how many thousand other people, you know, doing the chant. No, well, it was absolutely great. One of the first bands I ever saw was the Supremes when I was like about, about six years old. And I was at a, a, a parade. It was called the Orange Bowl Parade or, the, or something like that mm -hmm. in Florida. And there was like, people on floats you know um mm. cheerleaders and such yeah. and there was a there, i saw lauren green the actor singing on a float and then the Supreme, and then the supremes came by and they were doing baby love the three supremes wow. and i remember being a little boy knowing who they were and yeah. thinking like wow i'm actually watching a a group and it's the supremes and they and they just kind of went by and they had white gloves on and they were doing like the, the you know thing and uh it astounded me yeah so yeah, yeah. She's great. There's a, there's, um, there's a clip on YouTube, I think, of the Supremes singing on top of a restaurant in Detroit on the banks yeah, of the, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The, the Great Lakes. Yeah, and right. just, it's an old, old VHS yeah, yeah. clip, so it's got that kind of ghostly kind of quality to it. But it's absolutely yeah, beautiful. No, yeah, really haunting. And uh, um, also, I've, I've been, I was laid low with um, COVID mm. this last week as well. And so... I didn't listen to Jack White while I had COVID. I listened to, um, I don't know if you know, that. have you, Thurston, have you heard of a composer called Callie Malone? Yes. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know her. Oh, right. Well, yeah, I've yeah. been listening, listening to her new album, Living Torch. Yeah. And she's one of those female composers like Catherine Lan and mm -hmm. Ellen Arkbow and 
Caterina Barbieri, who are kind of working in like long form drones oh, yeah. and making these massive kind of unstable meditative works yeah. of, of, of just intonation. And that was the record that got me through COVID oh, good. because it created the, this hum, this giant hum in yeah. the house that just kind of calmed everything down and soothed everything down. Living Torch One by Carly Malone, released by GRM. We just saw her play a couple of weeks ago. She was here and she was playing with um, Sun. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, Stephen O'Malley's a big fan of hers, right. isn't he, yeah, as well? Yeah. yeah. yeah they, but no, I mean, I love all that stuff, that kind of what, sort of these female... Oh, yeah. Again, going back to what we were talking about, female composers taking kind of an area of music that for a long time was, you know, associated with male... American New York composers like Lamont Young and oh, you're you know, seeing a, it, you're seeing quite an influx in contemporary electronic music of yeah, uh, 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 where it's not just a bunch of academic nerd boys mm. doing it. Yeah, 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 for sure. And it seems it seems so perfect for kind of, as an area kind of for for creative kind of young women to yeah. work in. You know, it's mm. absolutely beautiful, beautiful stuff as well. Interesting that it sort of had a you know curing effect on you as well. Yeah. You know. that was it was perfect it was the it was the it was the balm that i needed what you've been listening to this week ian well i've been listening to the working men's club album fear fear which right. appealed to me on an awful lot of levels um i mean I, you know it's, it's quite redolent of sort of 80s manchester and sheffield there's a lot of quite um soily analog electronics going on and some and some very strident beats and that's suppose what it is i mean the music is quite twisted and nihilistic but it has this uh very oh. um an enlivening sort of bounce to it. So he's it's a good. young kid as well, isn't he's he? He's only is he? twenty. It's ridiculous. Wow, that's he's twenty fantastic. years old. And from the yeah. sound of things, um, you know, he is, he is the type of person who is going to go off on in different directions. He's going. He's probably folk yeah. next, which seems right. remarkable. So he's just that kind of whole approach, the young approach of sort of eclectic, taking different stuff from YouTube and not recognising any historical lineage Very, very possibly. I mean, I think that, you know, you, you say, oh, it sounds like the Hacienda in 1984. People go, oh, that's been done. That. But, you know, it hasn't been done for him. He's never done it. So consequently, yeah. it doesn't sound like it's listening to, you know, Section 25 or whatever. It's, <laughs> um, no, no, so it's, it's great stuff. There's a track, um, I think we're going to play, um, only a 20-year-old could think this was a funny subject for the song, Heart Attack. But it does sound <laughs> like... We, yeah, we, we older men don't, don't find it quite so amusing. Well, no, we <laughs> think of different things than what he does. Cause it, it, yeah. it, 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 but he doesn't care. He way. doesn't care. He's only 20. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's, 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 got, it's got a little bit of the home computer by Kraftwerk in there. So, yeah, yeah I think, I think they're great. And they're very good live as well. I advise anyone yeah. to go and see them. Is it a good sort of um, gnarly kind of dirty sound? Yes, it is. It is. And I mean, he's, I mean, I did interview him for, for Mojo and he, he, he was insistent that a lot of it actually is humour. Yeah. But again, it's the kind of humour that if you're 20, you know, you will find humorous. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's weird that it appeals to me so much. But yeah. Great records. Excellent. Yeah. Right. 
Are, do you, are you familiar with them, Thurston no. Walking Men's no, Club? I, no, no, well, I'll check it out. I, I, actually, I've heard, I've heard the name, but I know, I don't, yeah. I don't know the music. Brilliant. But, yeah, sounds good. Yeah. There's another track on the album, I forget what it's called now, it's the last track, but it's got really good, it's got really good string arrangement, it's got the best string arrangement on an electronic record I've heard for some yeah. time, so there you are. Yeah. Excellent, so maybe play a little bit of that. one both by working men's club released by heavenly records and finally a query from the ask mojo pages that we want to throw out to you the listeners to see if you can answer a mystery that we have yet to solve how true how true that is um it does follow on from iggy pop sort of i suppose there is a uh, an aura of transgression around this um Reader Paul Brown has asked us, why is there a urinating man on the first sleeves by Julius Wechter's Baha Marimba band? This sounds, you know, a very unusual request, but he, you know, it is correct on this, that they were, uh, they followed in after Herb Alpert's Tijuana Brass. Julius Wechter was actually, I think he may have been in the Tijuana Brass and he wrote the song Spanish Flea for Herb Alpert. And Herb Alpert says, you know, you need to get in on the, on the act here because he's, you know, Mexican, you know, in inverted commas, bands are proving very successful. So we, we formed a band. Uh, they had some quite big names in it. Hal Blaine was in the group. Leon Russell recorded with them. Um, I don't think they had any monstrously big hits, but they, you know, you, you always found a lot of them in charity shops, didn't you, Andrew? You and, certainly did, yes. And, and I think some of their tunes uh, had a you know, moment of glory in the mid-90s, easy listening, boom. The less said about, you know, the better and all that. But anyway, on the record sleeves, in amongst these fellas wearing sombreros, there is a, a person who appears to be urinating against a wall or on top of a hill. And so you think one of our listeners out there might know the reason why this mysterious urinating man always turned up? Why, why was he there? Who was he? What did he represent? How did they get away with it on the otherwise fairly unadventurous? I mean, A and M, great label, but they didn't often have people urinating. It's quite, it. it's quite, it's quite punk rock, isn't it? And, exactly and on, what the I was most, on the most staid um, label of the 60s and 70s. Well, indeed. You know, we got some great records on those labels. And the, these records are kind of for the background, aren't they? They're for yeah. having some kind of themed party, perhaps. So I hope, I hope that one of our subscribers has the answer to this eternal mystery. Well, I do. Well, I, if you... I was going to say, I hope it is some kind of, you know, somebody who's making a punk rock comment. Yeah. On the, on the if entire... you do, mm. please email mojo readers at bowermedia.co.uk I suppose one thing is it's funny it ties quite 
closely interested with your uh, Velvet's book, which is, um, and it relates also to the, the plaque you unveiled at oh, the yeah, Scarlet yeah, yeah. the other day. Yeah. Um, we sent. Oh, um, can you maybe explain what that was, Ian. Sorry. I will. Um, Ali Catterall and Jane Giles are making a film about the Scarlet, which sounds uh, very enticing. I can't wait to see it. And they the Scarlet was basically basically yeah. in the in the 80s was the home of independent cinema in it London, was. wasn't it? Yeah. So where you could go and see. Yeah. You know, Thundercrack and um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know Russ Meyer Triple Bill. You, you could and, see and, terrible and, and, things in the middle of the night and, and, and stagger out at six in yeah. the morning. Yeah, your yeah, brain yeah. totally rearranged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, I speak, it was the... from, ex- I speak from experience. <laughs> yes, indeed. And of course, it was the King's Cross Cinema back in 1972, when yeah. uh, on consecutive nights, uh, Lou Reed and Iggy Pop played very famous gigs there in uh, in the in the Scala. Now. Um, this is the plaque you unveiled, Thurston. Yes, wasn't it? And yes, um, this this, fan, this fellow named uh, uh, forgive me if I get his name wrong, Darren Van Norden. Uh, he he contacted me and said he uh, thought it would just be a great idea to have a blue plaque out front of the Scala, celebrating uh, for nineteen was it fifty years ago, nineteen seventy two. It was fifty years ago. Um, yeah. th- that two night run of Lou Reed playing his Transformer era album mm-hmm. uh, and then the next night Iggy and the Stooges doing their Raw Power record and it was all about them being in the main man, main man nexus of, of Tony DeVries yeah. and David Bowie and Bowie yeah. was supposed to be there I think he was there possibly at Lou's night but he wasn't there on Iggy's mm-hmm. night because mm-hmm. with Ziggy Stardust out Bowie's with Bowie was just going Nova just then, but you know, not quite. You still had a gig in Ellsbury that night, so mm-hmm. he, he, mm-hmm. Couldn't, he couldn't make the the Stooges gig, and the Stooges were expecting him to come and sort of present them to you know London, and yeah. uh, so he he was a no show, and they kind of yeah. they they went on at midnight, and from all accounts, when I say all accounts, I basically mean the photos of Mick Rock who was there and actually shot it, and you see on the yeah. back cover of Raw Power. Uh, it was an astounding gig, and uh, or at least it looked astounding. I mean, I, I don't think there's any actually audio documentation. Do you know what? There there are reviews of it though, and they are quite um, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that it's probably possibly better in our imagination than yep. an awful lot of yeah, stuff like of that. Course, yeah. I'm happy for it to be like this. But the, re- no, the reason I said it was like your Velvet Underground book is because in the current issue of Mojo, Alec yeah. Byrne, the photographer, has hmm. provided us with an, an unseen shot of Iggy. Oh. On stage, on stage at the oh, Scarlet. fantastic! From that, um, from that not, night, from that very night, oh. it's a, it's a, and um, because he was, uh, he shot them on spec. I mean, he shot it as a, you know, he ran an agency, so mm. he shot it, sent pictures off to the all the newspapers, and then the photographs were in a vault for forty-five years. Oh my god! And he got them out Amazing. again. But he did a book. He did a book called. Sorry, I've written down here. Um, oh, where is it? It's called London Rock, the Unseen Archive. Now, he included okay. two images of it in there. Okay. But we have seen a lot of the other pictures, and it's really quite something because oh. you're getting the Mick Rock experience, but from yeah. another angle. You know, the Iggy bending over backwards. You're getting it from another angle, you know. It's, it's really interesting. You can kind of, you can compare. We need all angles of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you do. Yeah, you, we do indeed. So you, you are comparing and contrasting in your head. But it's just that fantastic thing which we started off with, which is we yeah. think we've seen it all. And we yeah. really haven't. All you need is someone who is together enough to keep this stuff in, in good condition, yeah. but uninterested in sort of, you know, mouthing it about and kind of cheapening it 
Well, we so were talking. Not, we were talking about staring at these photographs, and which we all did, you know, in '72. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're yeah somewhere in the same age. But those photo, those record covers, you would just really sort of meditate yeah. on. You would stare at mm. as you were listening to them over and over and over again. But those photographs specifically, it was just very curious. Like, who were the people actually watching this, and why were they there? Like, who yeah. who actually knew about this band yeah. enough to like pay the fee to go in and sit there yeah. and watch Iggy and the Stooges for God's sakes? Who was at the Stooges gig? That's that's. Well, just... But but I, I did ask Alec Byrne about this, and he, you know, in a very polite way, that he remembered nothing. You know, <laughs> he didn't, he, he didn't yeah, really oh. like. He, he didn't care much for Iggy and Stooges. He yeah. liked uh, he liked Bowie, but he didn't like the Stooges. And he right. Just, uh, you know, I couldn't expect me to remember this. I was doing so much. You know, it was right, uh, right. It was working all I day think that's one of the before. things that's really common when you speak to people. They either there's basically they fit into three camps. They have an amazing memory of it they remember nothing yeah. or their memory of it is basically the received story yeah. that's been right, told right. that they have reappropriated as yeah. their old, yeah, yeah, they've, own they've memory read of it, it and then yeah. they've recreated it and they've, and they've basically wiped their brain of the original memory yeah. and replaced it by the, uh, yeah. you know, the sort of the mythic yeah. version of it. I, did, I, did the thing, I, I always remember first seeing Big Johnny, so we have it, yes. we have it here, it's documented. <laughs> Maybe we're more used to it now, though, because we were aware that we should try and remember it a bit better. But I didn't remember. Yeah. I, I interviewed Hawkwind about the Space Ritual tour, which is very, you know, hugely legendary event. And they, yeah. people from there did say, you're probably better off not having seen it <laughs> yeah. because it may have looked a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Shit. Yeah. We're allowed to say that. Yeah. Yes. No, not, yeah. not quite the ultimate mind destruction yeah. that we uh, now associate it with. Uh. Well, I've been dealing. I've been but, dealing with memory so much because I've been. I, I got contracted to do a, a a bit of a personalized Sonic Youth memoir, which is going to be published next year. But I uh, I've been dealing with memory a lot, and it's just like, it's pretty. You know, I've always sort of let it kind of be as abstracted as we all do, you know, like through the years. It's curious. It's curious how thing. You know, talking to other people who sort of go into that timeline mm -hmm. and how they sort of place things as opposed to how you're placing mm -hmm. things. And then you can sort of find some common, some common data, <laughs> but yeah. a lot of it is like really askew. And uh, yeah. can it be quite kind of you know because you're 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 maybe sort of going back and addressing things where you go, oh, I I buried that memory for a reason, well, and now I've got to revisit the, 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 it. Nah, I don't know about that. I mean, I mean, I don't know about like like blurring memories. I just think uh, there's blurring of memory. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there is that, and. Uh, I, I, I was talking to Lee Ronaldo about it, and because I sort of, I sent him something, and it's like, and he was like, "Dude, that's not when we first met." And I was talking to him about first, when we first met together, at, at, as far as I'm concerned, was at CBGB's when his band was like, on the same bill as my band uh, in 1980, 79 or 80, and that's when I first met Lee, and he was just mm -hmm. like, "No, no, no, I used to come see your guy, like this whole thing." But I was able to sort of thank God for libraries that have microfilm, able to sort of place these discs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I really kind of ironed out. So like, aha, this is, you know, he's like, oh, maybe you're right. You know, that is, that's going to be absolutely fascinating. So that is, that is due to come out now, next year, uh, ne is it? Next Are you delivering it next year? It'll be out next fall. It's called Sonic Live. Favor and Favor will be publishing it here. Oh, yeah. cool. Fantastic. Well, Excellent that's stuff. Yeah. That's, that's a really nice little um, yeah. note to end on. Yeah. Okay, um, that is the end of the program. And you've been listening to Thurston Moore, Ian Harrison, and myself, Andrew Mayle. And now we'd like to hear from you. 
If you have any questions, requests for records that we should discuss or guests you'd like us to have on the show, then, then do get in touch. You can uh, send your voice notes and emails to mojoreaders at bowermedia.co.uk. And um, I should also say thanks to everyone who has subscribed. You are now all part of the world's most exclusive record club. And we hope to see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Mojo Record. You've been listening to the Mojo Record. <clears throat> You've been listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Thurston. <laughs> The stuff you call the rubbish.